0: Which one's the best crypto asset? Well, Bitcoin's the best crypto asset. Okay. What's the second best? There is no second best. There's no second best crypto asset. There's a crypto asset. It's called Bitcoin, right? Right. There is no second best. Okay. Welcome to the Why Bitcoin Show with me, Dale Warburton. It's a weekly podcast on why Bitcoin matters and what makes it fundamentally different to every other crypto token in existence. I've seen firsthand how crypto really works. And my mission is to speak to the brightest minds on earth to help ordinary people distill crypto fact from fiction. Because as Lynn Olden says, and it's spot on, those that conflate Bitcoin and crypto simply don't understand either. All right. So today we've got a special macro edition and I've got the one and only Peter Dunworth with me. Welcome, Peter.
1: Val, it's a pleasure to see you. How are you?
0: very very good thanks how are you sir
1: really good looking forward to this
0: super yeah i i we spoke about this uh a couple of weeks ago when we first came up with the idea and um lynn alden had said she was not available unfortunately so i've gone to my plan b i hope you don't mind being playing second fiddle to lynn for this particular episode i'll see if i can get on for later ones.
1: what a compliment thank you <laughs>
0: absolutely so um Peter my vision for today is really just to sort of walk through what's happened over the last 30 to 60 days in the world of macroeconomics and then we can jump onto the bitcoin stuff and so there's just so many different angles there's so many different moving parts and so I would love you just to give us at a very high level your take of what's happening given what we've seen with central banks and interest rates and inflation that surprise surprise wasn't transitory after all
1: i mean what an interesting time we live in the the last two months in particular i think have been some of the most confusing times that i've seen in 25 years of you know looking at markets Um, i think there is confusion in the markets there's you know mixed signals from all players particularly the fed and treasury uh, particularly in the last 60 days you know there are a whole host of topics that we can go through and delve into in detail but the overall macro picture is very confusing and you know when it comes to assigning or investing money in this environment it's a very difficult decision to be making because there's no clear direction in the market from the market and what we're seeing is effectively a bifurcation across markets that it's almost like a, a bipolar market that on every level whether it's the actual the the market itself the fed and the treasury you know, or alternatively from a a ground up level, we're getting mixed signals at every stage. And this is the confusing thing. And when you think about how to allocate capital in this type of environment from a macro perspective, very confusing, very hard time. And you look at the assets that you've got available to invest in, it's, it's just very confusing. And this is where there are so many moving parts that we need to consider. And, you know, I'll just... Look at the highest of levels, you know, the greatest thing that I find confusing in this market at the moment, which has the the biggest weight, the biggest influence on what is happening in the market right now. And that is effectively the Federal Reserve. The Federal Reserve is tightening. You've seen Jamie Dimon, who effectively runs slash owns the Federal Reserve with his his business, JP Morgan. They, they're they effectively outlining that interest rates are going to stay at 6 to 7%. And you should be getting comfortable with that for a longer term. So the only way to interpret that from a market perspective is that that's effectively quantitative tightening. They're increasing interest rates to suck liquidity out of the market and to try and get inflation under control. You juxtapose that position that the Federal Reserve's taking with what Treasury's doing and what Congress has done from a fiscal perspective. We've just seen that they've just increased the the debt ceiling. So that's been re-rated up and all of a sudden, it's very confusing because the quantitative tightening that the Federal Reserve's undertaking should be uh, should be shrinking the economy. It should be a sign to the market that, hey, we need to shrink the economy down, we need to be conservative, we need to crush demand so we can get inflation under control. And then literally with the other hand, Treasury is out there basically approving debt ceiling raise and we're not going to be talking about there's going to be no new limit on the debt raise for the next two years that's been approved that's fundamentally quantitative easing in the most simplest of terms. They're going to be spending money that they don't have, which is going to be flowing into the economy. So we're in this very odd position that trying to get a cue on what's going to happen or what's how, how that's going to affect the markets is, is very confusing right now because we've got, you know, from the institutions that effectively are meant to guide us on what they want from us. We're being told two very different things.
0: Right. And Looking at what's happened with the banks, I think three banks in total having failed, and I believe JP Morgan scooping up the asset, as I understand what happened, and this is just coming from a kind of a layperson's perspective, it seems as if the Fed is saying, okay, we're tightening, but then when push came to shove, they sort of revealed that if the conditions got bad enough, they'll step in. Do you have any comments around that? I mean, perhaps I've worded it poorly, but hopefully you get the gist of it.
1: No, I think you, you worded it correctly. It's just much broader than those three banks or four banks. So I think the situation you're describing is the fact that three crypto banks uh, effectively went bust, were insolvent and closed up shop. The ones you're referring to, are Silvergate, Silicon Valley Bank and Signature, they were very friendly to the crypto sector. And what was really interesting when they first went bust is you saw the mainstream media, you saw the financial times in the uk i think it's financial times you saw wall street journal try and blame this as a crypto problem and it soon became apparent that it was absolutely not a crypto problem it was not a just an isolated incident amongst crypto banks it was a systemic issue that could blow up the us banking system and the the problem was caused by the fact that the us banking and accounting system, well, I'll talk about the accounting system first, and then how that relates to the US banks and what they did. I'm not trying to uh, diminish the lack of risk mitigation that these banks undertook, because there was clearly very poor uh, risk policies put in place to avoid this sort of thing happening. But there, there were incentives given by the accounting system that promoted a sense of security with the way they invested those assets that eventually led to this these banks blowing up. The reason why these banks blew up is because they invested in effectively 10-year bonds. And the 10-year bonds went from effectively being valued at 100% of what they were issued at to being valued at 80% of what they were issued at. And what happened was this normally would not be a problem. However, when money runs out of the bank, And they have to sell these long term assets that they've held on that they should only have to sell in 10 years time. They have to they've got no other liquidity in the bank. They have to sell those those bonds at a at a 20 percent loss. And that represented across those banks nearly a 200, a 200 billion dollar impairment on their balance sheet. So that was a huge deal. And everyone's looking at this thinking, oh, that's an isolated crypto problem. But what they're not looking at is the fact that there's about a five to six trillion dollar hole in the US banking sector balance sheets if this was to spread to all of the other banks. And this is why when uh, First Republic went effectively the same way as the previous crypto banks, that was the fourth bank to fail, um, you had Jamie Dimon basically very quickly step in and say, look, we'll buy this. It was a great deal for JP Morgan, but it was effectively, um, I think, almost like a way to stem the Stem the bleed. Like if they hadn't have cut it off there, then the rest of the banking system could have had a run on it. And and this is where what, what was highlighted to me, which was very curious from an accounting perspective, and to bring this full circle back to Bitcoin, is what's really interesting is is if if you're a bank in the U.S. and you buy a ten year Treasury from the Federal Reserve, you get to leave that on your balance sheet, and if that drops significantly in value, you don't have to mark that to market it's effectively a risk-free asset that you can leave on your balance sheet until duration. And it doesn't matter until it does in the case of these crypto banks that went tits up. Unreal. Now, what's really curious is is that this is a huge incentive for these banks to buy and invest in those those treasuries and put them on the balance sheet because it allows them, you know, the risk-free asset that they don't have to worry about blowing up What's curious is, is when you compare this to the accounting uh, rules and regulations that Bitcoin has to adhere to when they when you put Bitcoin on the balance sheet, let's take the curious case of Michael Saylor. He invests $4 billion into Bitcoin. And I think he's trading at really rough numbers here. Don't quote me on this. $30,000 of Bitcoin is what he purchased for. He put that on the balance sheet, a MicroStrategy, a listed company. That Bitcoin then went down to $15,500 uh, per coin. So he's effectively ripped up $2 billion worth of Bitcoin. And the accounting treatment for Bitcoin in the US is that you have to hold that on your balance sheet at the lowest price that it went to. You don't get to mark to market it. So it is literally the complete antithesis to how a 10-year bond is held on a banking balance sheet. The Bitcoin is held on a, a corporate balance sheet. And and this is all about incentives. Show me the incentives. I'll show you the outcome. Everyone talks about the fact that, oh, we want corporations to buy. Well, there's no incentive for them to buy because they've got to mark that down at the lowest price possible. So they're incentivized to buy treasuries at 5% because they know there's no impairment. And particularly the banks, they know there's going to be zero impairment if they hold it for the term. And we've seen the banks, the Federal Reserve step in and basically make good on all these bonds that are undervalued that should effectively be trillions of dollars worth of losses and you you know you basically overlay that with what micro strategy has to do with michael saylor and his accounting for bitcoin yeah i mean it's breathtaking just the the cognitive dissonance that goes on with a lot of people who look at this and think oh bitcoin's risky and the rest of it it's like bitcoin does not get a free kick at any point along the road it yeah. gets it gets admonished it gets disciplined it gets treated unfairly and yet we're still at what 27 28 us of bitcoin whatever it is at the moment despite all of these inconsistencies and the unfairness in its treatment from an accounting perspective
0: now on that particular issue i understand say is doing quite a bit of lobbying around trying to change the rules relating to the way the bitcoin would be treated on his balance sheet because i guess if you're a publicly listed company you work quarter to quarter and i think that's where that's when that's uh impairment needs to be noted I'd imagine as I understand the rules are such that it's not as if if the Bitcoin went up sort of 2x it's not as if you can actually enjoy that benefit it's only if it actually went backwards right
1: correct so the the Bitcoin doubled in value from 15 and a half to roughly 30. he doesn't get to revalue it at 30 to basically improve his balance sheet and the rest of it he's still trading with two billion dollar impairment on his balance sheet now the Research analysts, equity analysts are smart enough to figure out that, hey, there's not a $2 billion loss there. We know what the purchase price is. We know how many he bought, what he paid for it. It's actually good. But from an accounting perspective, you know, they call they talk about truth in accounting. And I'm like, yeah. oh my God, boys.
0: Wow, <laughs> great slogan. Hey.
1: But, uh, you know, like anything, it's just great marketing because it's all.
0: Yeah. Yes, yeah. So just still touching on the sort of banking Sector there in the US. One of the things I've come across is that something like 70% of commercial property loans are with regional banks. So the big banks typically don't have exposure to that extent. And so what we're seeing in the US is a lot of these REITs and the bigger property funds were able to refinance at 2%. And you're now got a situation where these regional banks are actually quite significantly exposed. And they don't seem to have a lot of wiggle room and commercial property valuations have taken an absolute beating in the States, Uh, vacancies in parts of LA and San Francisco, sort of North of 30%. Do you have any view on the commercial property sector in the U S and what that could look like and whether we could potentially experience something, something like that here in Australia?
1: Yeah, that's a, it's a really dark question because the commercial sector in the US is under extreme pressure, I think. And you've got to look at, you know, probably the most extreme examples of that have typically been New York. Um, You've got San Francisco as well. It's basically a ghost town. Um, That's really sad to see because I spent a lot of time in San Francisco visiting my brother and catching up with him and, you know, traveling around the town. I thought it was a, it's a spectacular town. It's beautiful. And it was a really vibrant city that, you know, had a huge amount of activity, obviously, the Silicon Valley. And what's what's turned out there is there's a huge number of vacancies and commercial property um, prices have plummeted. And what what problem is presented with this is the fact that what happens in the US anyway is that they have a very curious lending system in that most of their lending is done on a non-recourse basis. So in Australia, we work on a recourse lending, which if you don't pay your loan back you've got personal guarantees on that property and then you're liable for any losses the bank incurs you can't just throw the keys back and walk away during the gfc we saw um, thousands if not millions of homes uh, home keys returned to the banks and people just walked away with no recourse the bank didn't have any recourse whatsoever to it and the commercial property sector is much like that too and that wouldn't normally be a problem however when you've got not only when you've got such huge drops in commercial property values you lose all of the equity premium that's built into the the property purchase, and now you're you're sustaining real losses on those those commercial loans, which represents a big, big problem. It represents a huge problem for firstly the regional banks because they're typically the ones who are making most of those loans um, and and then it poses sort of second order consequences onto this and and you've got to think about what does this mean for these banks. To highlight our previous example with you know the bonds, basically dropping in value. The Federal Reserve stepped in and literally just handed out bonds to anyone who wanted them, basically, give or take, and said, look, take the new bonds. We'll take the old bonds off you. You'll you'll pay us the difference in interest, but you, you, your balance sheets are solid, so you're not going to tip over. It's very different to do that. Well, it's easy for the Federal Reserve to do that with bonds, 10-year treasuries, the rest of it, because they print money out of thin air for those bonds. So they can create them out of thin air. It's very different, the consequences of the what happens with failed lending on commercial properties because, firstly, they lose equity. Secondly, the banks then own these properties. And thirdly, what are the consequences down the road for uh, these banks that own properties and then have to sell properties for less than what they're actually worth? And it poses a question, you know, is the Federal Reserve going to step in and then purchase these commercial assets like they did the shitty bonds that lost 20% of their value? Now, I would think no, but yeah. it turns out the Federal Reserve is going to buy junk bonds, so why not buy a shitty commercial property too? And, I mean, I look at this and I think, how on earth did the Federal Reserve get themselves in this position that they all of a sudden could be, you know, the largest commercial landowner in America with the purchase of this? Now, I'm not sure what could happen from here moving forward, but it just creates a huge amount of pressure on the system. And it, it affects the economy in a number of different ways. Those Those... Commercial lenders are typically small businesses or medium-sized businesses in regional America, not in the major cities. So it, it has a huge impact from an employment perspective, productivity perspective, home prices, you know, su- sustainability, viability of the banks, and then what actually happens with those assets. So you know, the most egregious example of this I heard literally just today from a client. Property in San Francisco was purchased not long ago, and it's had a 70% write-down in its value. Now, assuming a 50% gearing ratio, which would be a relatively fair ratio of gearing in a commercial property like that, that bank's got a 20% loss, a 20% impairment on that property sitting on its balance sheet until it's sold. How does that get accounted for? How do they get out of that hole of insolvency on that asset, on that loan? I don't know. It just presents a whole host of problems that I don't hear a lot of people talking about this.
0: That's so interesting because it seems as as if the Fed is very interventionist when it comes to financial assets, with it's bonds and that sort of thing. But if you're talking about like real assets, I think it's, it seems right now quite hard pressed to imagine a situation where they'll go up and buy you know, office towers in New York and San Francisco. But we've seen stranger things happen. So yeah, no, as, as someone who's worked in commercial property, it's just something that I wanted to ask because I, I still spend time in commercial property here in brisbane and it seems like you know happy days there doesn't seem to be any drama there but i guess the banking system here is a lot it's a lot more centralized i think a lot of the commercial loans are with some of the bigger better capitalized banks and so there isn't that as big a risk i'd imagine here in australia
1: that's true and we haven't had as bigger and a as an intense rate increase that the U S has experienced, the U S has experienced, you know, their federal, their reserve, their, their risk-free rate going from 0.25% to 5% in just over 12 months. We didn't have anywhere near that steepness on on the curve and the increase in interest rates, which thankfully for us, we didn't have, we've also got a very different banking system to the U S our lending, I think is much more conservative and our banks are far better capitalized. And, um our our lending ratios across the commercial commercial sector is very conservative compared to the US. So okay. we we do a better job in that capacity.
0: Right. Okay. Interesting. When I started learning about finance, you know, the thirty year Treasury was the risk free rate. But what we've sort of seen is things have been kind of inversed where the shorter duration bonds are actually yielding far higher than the long-term treasuries. And you think to yourself that typically that is supposed to be indicative of a recession. Yet we've seen one commentator after the next say that, you know, it's going to be a soft landing or whatever the case may be, but they say virtually bar none, has there been a case where there's been a prolonged period with an inverted yield curve where there hasn't been a recession? So do you have a view on that particular issue?
1: I think it's so nuanced that argument that we've never been in this position before. So if you think about it, we've had inverted yield curves for nearly a decade before. Um, I think it was either 1910s, 1920s, where we had this strange position where there was effectively no inflation, inverted yield curve. And, you know, we had the roaring 20s that led to the depression. But let's just talk about the roaring 20s because that's a lot more fun. Um, it, It just creates, I think confusion in the market and i I don't have the answers for that and the bond market doesn't have the answers for that because typically that that is a harbinger for what is going to be some very difficult times ahead and you've seen some recent economic commentary talking about you know the first rate cut is actually really uh really negative for the outlook of the economy it basically is the recognition of the reserve banks that there is something seriously wrong and they need to adjust course so you typically have the recession after the first rate cut not Mm -hmm. before it okay We're not even there yet. So despite all this doom and gloom talk that we're looking at, we still haven't even hit that spot, which I think is probably a better marker for what's happening. But this inverted yield curve does present some problems because, you know, in very simple terms, an inverted yield curve means you're getting paid less to take more risk. Yeah. Now that kind of defies the laws of physics. You want to have for the longer duration. That means more risk. That means you should have a higher interest rate and, The problem with the yield curve being inverted is that you get paid all your money up front and you get paid less for sending it into the future that you can't touch for five or 30 or 10 years. And that's not typically how nature works. It's not how physics works. It's not how finance works. It basically means something's fundamentally broken. So I don't know what that means for us moving forward, but it it means a a very confusing time. Back to that thought. You know, we're getting sent mixed messages at every every step of the way. And the the yield curve being inverted is another confirmation that, you know, there is no clear direction in the market. Yeah. And we we
0: speak a lot about the US. And I know that sort of the the US is kind of the 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 tail that wags the dog mm-hmm. or something like that. What is your sort of take on on the broader sort of global uh, picture in terms of what's happening in the European markets from what you, you know, from what you can tell, because I heard some interesting stuff recently where there was all the talk about the, the energy crisis in Europe and uh, something along the lines of like $650 billion uh, of underinvestment in hydrocarbons. And fortunately the weather played its part. It didn't get as cold as, as, as it typically would get. And, um, at the same time, China had shut up, shut up shop. So the biggest importer uh, of natural gas wasn't uh, really in the market at that point. So they were able to pick up. um and at the same time, interest rates were going up. So, that also put downward pressure on energy prices. So they had all this sort of confluence of events that just that kind of got them through the season. But from what I can tell, I'm just talking to mates of mine who are there in Europe. It's very painful still. Inflation is super sticky. Um, got mates in the UK. You know, double digit inflation is sort of the norm. We've seen all sorts of posts online about some of the more essential things in life, like energy and food, like twenty percent up. What do you think is happening in Europe?
1: <laughs> <laughs> I talked about how bad America is, but America is still, you know, to praise Luke Groman, still the a, a shirt in the dirty pile. Yeah,
0: <laughs> it, yeah.
1: America sounds bad. Well, wow. hold oh, my beer. Let's talk about Europe. Europe is <laughs> a complete basket case. <laughs> Look at this and think, um, you know, from an investment perspective, we have very few investments in Europe for, for the simple fact that it is a very it doesn't have. Well, it's got some huge limitations, and I think if we look at geopolitically, there is a potential World War Three happening on their doorstep in the Ukraine. I yeah, you know, I hope to God that you know the killing and that war stops as quickly as possible. We can get a peaceful resolution because it creates a whole heap of economic instability. Not only that, there's a huge amount of death going on that I, I would just love to see the end of. It doesn't help anyone. Um, so we have a war zone literally on the continent, which is is, is a very disruptive thing. We have also um, Russia basically has been banned from providing uh, energy to Europe, which um, Russia provided really cheap energy to Europe and they were the net beneficiary of that because it made their manufacturing sector so cheap. Germany was the primary beneficiary of this. They had, well, you know, um, I, I saw one quote that they're... they're um, their cost of energy was about $20 or $30 billion for the gas that they received each year, but they were able to sell $2 trillion worth of um, manufactured goods on the back of that. So they, for every dollar they took in, they sold $100. So they were a huge net beneficiary for the cheap energy and gas, oil and gas that was provided by Russia. Um, sadly, with the, the sanctions and the rest of it that have gone on, you know, albeit somewhat necessary, uh, Russia now sends their uh, diesel, their oil, their gas to Saudis they basically then sell it back to Russia, back to Europe, and they take a 30% clip on it. So Europe's missing out on cheap energy and the Saudis are benefiting to the tune of 30%, and they're effectively buying the same thing. So very frustrating to understand, you know, why they would want to do that to themselves. And this is where energy in in Europe in particular is, I think, a a massive... um, voter issue. They are very focused on climate change. They don't, I think, understand the ramifications of the policies that they're implementing. They're closing down nuclear power stations to replace that with coal in Germany. I I just find that absolutely mind-numbing that they could be doing that and thinking they're achieving a a green agenda with that. Interestingly, um, I, I just think there are so many problems with with the way the European parliaments have handled that energy crisis in in Europe. And I think, to your point earlier, they got away with one with a relatively mild winter. And if they're struck with a heavy, heavy cold, they don't have the infrastructure assets to really deal with this. And one thing that's, I think, particularly disturbing with this is that natural gas, which is basically one of their, their major sources of energy that they're now trying to supplement with renewable energy, is the cleanest form of energy. Of, um, hydrocarbon energy that we've got it burns a lot cleaner than coal it burns a lot cleaner than diesel it's our cleanest form of hydrocarbon with the least co2 emissions and Mm. what what's not well known or sort of recognized is that up until maybe five or six years ago europe was a net exporter of natural gas i do not know that it's insane so they've turned off the taps for their own natural gas they are importing it from russia they're now turning that away and they're having to ship you know basically lng ships from texas and florida well it's texas but you know they've basically got to ship lng and they've got to build lng terminals to basically provide gas for europe when five years ago they were supplying themselves and they were supplying so much to themselves that they could export it it wow. seems like madness it like- feels
0: like utter madness it's like they've they've exported also all their carbon emissions to you in a sort of virtue signaling way to say, look, look, look what we're doing. We don't manufacture anything here, but everything's being done in China and India. And we know what they do with energy. I mean, China's still building coal plants. So, yeah, yeah it, it it blows my mind. And I've sort of got an idea that I can't see the European Union remaining in its current form beyond the next 10 to 15 years. And part of the reason is when you look at the sort of composition of it, It's firstly such a hodgepodge mix of cultures, languages, and and peoples. But beyond that, you look at essentially Southern Europe is being funded by Northern Europe. And Germany is sort of, I guess, the engine, if you like. And I think there's going to be a point at which people internally say, like, we can't just keep subsidizing this. You could still have free movement of people. You could still have favorable trade agreements. But to also have your own currency where you've got... Places like Spain, Portugal, Greece that have debt to GDP that's blowing up. And then you have these sort of powerhouses like Germany sort of footing the bull at the end of the day. I just don't know how long that can actually last. And I'm not sure if the populace is at some point going to wake up or what's going to change. But that's just my thesis that I've been working on. Have you ever thought through that potential?
1: Absolutely. When the Germans get angry, you don't want to know what happens. Like, gosh, they are, you know, they're very industrious like they're you know the most disciplined they're the most rigid they're the most structured i think of all of the european nations you just need to look at their manufacturing process their engineering prowess it's literally exported globally they are you know in in many ways the the best of our manufacturers on earth you know you look at german quality it's synonymous with quality yes um, absolutely however, you know, I think the German people are going to get very sick of subsidising, you know, people sitting on the beach sipping pina coladas down in Portugal or Spain and, you know, Majorca and Greece. It's it's not going to last for long. And, you know, what's happened up until now with the the experiment of the European Union is Germany benefited dramatically from that because they were able to basically uh, lower the, well, they got rid of the German Deutschmark to start with. And that was trading a very high value. And because they effectively went into the European Union, they created the EU and it basically brought down their dollar. It made them competitive on a global basis. So Mm. then they exported to the world and they were the net uh, net beneficiary of the European Union. And that's pretty much where the power base resides. And effectively, the last 20 years, well, not quite 20 years, I think, with the EU, but it's basically been a bribe. The Germans have basically bribed all the other nations in there to uh, play along with their game of lowering the the German Deutschmark which is now called the euro um, and and they've been able to sell to the world on a competitive basis because if they had to deal with a, a a fair a fair market rate for their for their dollar um they wouldn't be selling anywhere near as much so it's sort of they've had a really good run and now they're coming into a point where they've actually the rubber meets the road with having to make some hard decisions and to your point you know there's a high likelihood that you're not going to have a, a European union in the next 15 years because it's very difficult To bring together a monetary union without a political union and that's what we don't have so you either have a political union which is why i think you've seen a lot of the overreach from say davos the world economic forum and the european union basically mandating and dictating what nation states have to do Mm -hmm. Um, they're conscious of the fact that if they don't have a political union then they don't have a monetary union so
0: that's a great point Mm. interesting Okay, yeah, I just had to touch on Europe because I heard some stuff recently, and it's something like uh, their PMI had contracted for uh, in for thirty five <clears throat> consecutive quarters, as uh, as as if that's that's indicative of the fact that they're just not manufacturing there at the moment.
1: Yeah, I it, I think it would be um, I, I think it be maybe thirty five months, or, or the PMI figures now down to thirty five, and it should be fifty. There we go. Um, that, that is a huge problem for German manufacturing. And this is, you know, just a result of the lack of energy. And you need to have a consistent supply of energy and you need to have effectively cheap energy. And you've seen one of, you know, the greatest corporate entities that Germany's ever produced in BASF, the chemical engineering company, has now said, we're leaving, we're going to move to the US. And I think they're also setting up a plant in China. Now, that's hugely detrimental to Germany because all of the innovation and the tech and, you know, all of the high-paying jobs that go with chemical engineering are basically moving to the US and China now. And you look at that and, you know, BASF is upstream of a whole host of industries that are downstream of it. So you'll see that's the first one to move. And the logical implication of that is you're going to see a whole host of other manufacturers move to be near those plants because it makes sense to be near the producer of your chemicals or um, supplier of that.
0: Absolutely. Okay, yeah, that's very interesting. Um, okay, so I'd like to touch on now an issue that I'm seeing um, pop up over and over again. And it seems as if there's, I don't want to say two camps, but maybe they are where yeah, on the issue of de-dollarization, there's some that are saying it's happening really rapidly. We're seeing uh, all around the world, the likes of China, Saudi, and the BRICS nations starting to cozy up alongside each other and say, let's start doing trade between each between ourselves and then you've got other folks who say yeah that's fine um maybe it is happening but it's happening at like it will happen at a glacial pace and the us dollar is still king and is likely to be king for the next couple decades so uh what's your take on that
1: can both people be right it's (laughs)
0: quite likely
1: (laughs) and and this is where i look at this i think you know I hear this de talk, and let me just take the the negative on that for for the first part. You know, people call it, call it de-dollarization, and I I don't think what people understand is, in order to have de-dollarization, you need to have redollarization, and so we need to go through redollarization before we have de-dollarization because the amount of US or euro dollar debt out there is exorbitant. So in order to extinguish that, you either hand over. All of the assets that you've bought with those euro dollars or alternatively you have to buy a lot of dollars to basically pay that back so what happens when you're trying to pay out huge amounts of euro dollar debt you need to buy usd to pay that back so i hear the commentary around oh it's de-dollarizing look at all these contracts being denominated in yuan and indian rupee and the rest of it and i'm like that's a different argument you know that Ultimately, it will lead to de-dollarization, but for the best part in the in the short term, it leads to redollarization, not de-dollarization, because you have two very distinct things happening there. Those contracts are basically referring to a medium exchange. However, medium exchange is not a store of value, or alternatively, the payment of a debt, and and this is it's just a lubricant that goes through the economy to transact. But nothing stays in those dollars that are basically accounted for. And you're seeing what I think the first breakdown or one of the first hurdles with this is you've seen uh, Russia said that they were were happy to take Indian rupee for, for oil and gas. And all of a sudden, within literally three days of the announcement, they've turned around and said, oh, hang on a second, we don't want this much Indian rupee because how do we really trust it? It's like as bad as the US dollar is, it's still the most trusted currency that we can bank on. Um, from a government or fiat perspective. And this is the difference with, say, talking about contracts in yuan, talking about contracts in Indian rupee for oil and gas. That's a huge thing. But it's only a medium exchange to facilitate a moment in time. People don't want to keep that currency. They still want a US dollar on the back of it. So they'll change that out immediately for a US dollar because it's still a better currency than a Chinese yuan or an Indian rupee.
0: Well, uh, let's just, uh perhaps dig into what the euro dollar market's about because i've heard it uh a bunch of times and like honestly it never really sticks with me as much as i'd love it to so i you know i would have imagined the us is the only country can actually create dollars but as i've understood the euro dollar market you can actually create dollars offshore so banks offshore are creating actual us dollars but obviously they're not they don't have the ability to mint physical currency but they can pass a ledger entry uh when they're creating a loan just like any bank here is that correct or have i missed the boat
1: yeah you've you've fundamentally hit the nail on the head you've got the us dollar is the us dollar basically minted and printed by the federal reserve and then you've got a euro dollar which is a us dollar that is originated outside of the u.s So there are more euro dollars in existence than there are US dollars, which is odd because one's a derivative of the other. And they're typically minted in the form of creating liabilities offshore from the US because global trade is still conducted, you know, 83% of global trade's conducted in US dollars and needs to be conducted outside of the US, most of global trade. Um, But they need a payment mechanism for that. So dollars are effectively created out of thin air.
0: All right. That makes sense. All
1: right, so the last thing I wanted
0: to touch on on the macro side of things uh, before we go down the Bitcoin thesis that I'd love to unpack your triple point asset thesis. I'd love to get into that. But have you got any idea of what the second half of this year looks like? Uh, Talk of tightening and then we see some form of QE arising via the back door or how do you actually see this transpiring? Are we just... To read like a crystal ball, I mean, is that is that really the thing? There's like no one actually knows what's happening, and everyone's one like everyone just sits and analyzes every single word of what the Fed says and hopes they've got the interpretation right. And then when something breaks, they'll sort of step in. I mean, I, 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 to me, it
1: just it just it's a little bit of a clown show. But have you got a view? I I agree with you. I think this is a clown show where now you know you think about the productive things that you and I do day to day. And now we spend time literally looking at Jerome Powell and analyzing what he wears, how he acts, who he spoke to, what his flight log looks like, um, just as an edge to see what is coming down the road. And all of this unproductive, well, all of this time that could have been productive and, you know, basically channeled into ventures for improving, you know, our businesses, our life, and the rest of it, get funneled into just a a, a meaningless activity of you know trying to second guess what's happening and and this is where if i take a view on it i think you know in the next six months uh, maybe maybe 12 months tops we will see something break and you know i i can only go on jamie diamond's word which you know in these circles probably may not mean a lot but you know he's been a pillar of the financial community for over 40 years now he spends you know goes to washington dc weekly he's one of the most people on earth and he's telling us you need to get ready for interest rates at six to seven percent for an extended period of time now that poses i think a big problem for what we've got and what we're looking at and this is sort of the confusion in the market you've got you've got the the treasury and you've got congress basically printing money and you know removing the debt ceiling so we can basically print money put it into the economy which should be effectively you know um quite quite um beneficial for economic activity and then at the same time you've got the Federal Reserve and JB Diamond turning around and saying no no we're raising rates and so to your point about something has to break literally something has to break before things change we we are at a stalemate I think between what Congress wants to do which is just print money and make everyone happy and you know the adult in the room being the Federal Reserve uh, basically saying hey we've got a problem we've got a debt problem we've got uh, effectively a a cash flow problem that we can't meet our commitments we need to basically stop that and in addition to that we've got an inflation problem that we need to get underway so i need to get under underhand so Mm. it's just very confusing And i think what the past sort of few years has taught me is that something will come out of you know left field that none of us see and that will be the moment that we see things break or something changes and then we see a clear direction one way or the other as to what needs to happen and we'll probably all look back in hindsight and pontificate that oh yeah we saw that coming and it's like no we didn't no one sees it so
0: okay yeah so it, it almost feels like we're in a holding pattern uh, yes. because there's certain signals to me and when I did my financial planning diploma I went through all the basics and you look at you know equities and they were sitting at you know all the big tech companies have p ratios of 30 and I remember reading the intelligent investor and he was talking about like single digit P ratios and all that kind of thing. And you think, okay, are these companies like grossly overvalued? Or is it just a reflection of the fact that they printed so much money that people didn't know where else to put their money? And then you've got this whole AI explosion. And then I see, oh, NVIDIA is now like a trillion dollar company. And you like, and you think, well, is that just, um, is that some, is that like idiosyncratic? Is that just like something that's going to pop up and burst? Uh, I mean, I'm not saying AI will burst, but that company in particular or... Is this indicative of some sort of other rising tides kind of thing? I it's just there's so much stuff on the go. It feels like very much in this sort of holding pattern. And yeah, I think also still here in Australia, there's is also that feeling where people are wondering, you know, what's the RBA gonna do? Because the the more they raise rates, the louder the chorus of screeches becomes about. You know, I was going to put a voice on there, but I thought, no, you're making housing unaffordable. And you think to yourself, like, that's exactly what's happening. (laughs) Maybe you took too much debt, man. But um, yeah, it's just like, it just feels like we're in this strange, strange period, as you say. And like, I'm obviously not a fund manager, but for you, it must be really, it must be really odd being in such a, uh,
1: such an unusual period in history. It's really testing and it takes all of your wits to navigate this. And I think if anyone has a clear direction or outlook and is got a firm opinion, um, I would take that with a grain of salt because, you know, you hear the best in the world talk about how confusing or how hard this market is. It's the hardest they've seen. You know, the latest to sort of spout that would be Stanley Druckenmiller, you know, one of the greatest investors of all time. You know, what's interesting to your point earlier about, you know, value investing and reading the intelligent investor where they're buying companies value stocks for mid to high single digits. Warren Buffett, when he started buying Coca-Cola, he was buying it at a six to seven times earnings. And I look at that, that literally is trading today at about 25 times earnings. And I'm like, that's trading like a tech stock. Mm. Make it make sense to me, please. <laughs> like nothing makes sense right now. And I look at this and I'm like, how on earth does this make sense? And if we went back six months ago, Coca-Cola was trading at a 29 times PE ratio And we had Facebook trading at a 15 times PE. How on earth does that make sense? It just doesn't. We are in upside down world at the moment and more confusion. And so the only sensible thing to do at this point in time with all of this going on is, you know, basically sit on your hands. There's only two things I'm really confident of at this point in time. And that is, you know, I want to be sitting on cash and I don't want to be deploying that to the market in this, this very moment. That could change tomorrow but at this point in time no and i want to be holding bitcoin and you know there's an argument for gold but i prefer bitcoin because i think it's got a lot more upside than gold but you know i understand why you're holding gold and bitcoin at this point in time so it's it's a real barbell strategy if you're already invested then you're kind of in the market and living the moment but if you're sitting on cash looking to apply that to the market yeah there's very little opportunities out there at this point in time it yeah it
0: does feel like that but There is something that is a great opportunity that I've heard of that we might want to touch on. Uh, Starts with a B. Uh, Let's talk about your, your, your Bitcoin thesis. So I'd love you to just unpack that for us. Um, Maybe what I'll do is give you my sort of high level understanding and you can tell me if it's relatively on track and then you can go deeper. But as I understand you say that most people will focus on Bitcoin from a store of value perspective but you look at it as a triple point asset and that it can it's the only asset in history that can function as a store of value medium of exchange and a unit of accounts um, is that more or less kind of your thinking and um, and if so please dig in and and tell us sort of from the ground up your bitcoin thesis
1: yeah that that fundamentally is a very good rendition of what i think this is and you know we've had Assets before in history that have been all forms of or all functions of money. And so those functions of money being store of value, be of exchange, unit of account. But we've never had one asset to rule them all. We've never had one asset that has been a significant step change improvement to its predecessor in the role of store of value. If you look at Bitcoin um, in relation to gold as a store of value, gold has one thing over Bitcoin that Bitcoin does not, and that is a Five thousand-year track record of being valuable and sought after from humanity. However, uh, Bitcoin also has, uh, sorry, gold has an inflation rate of somewhere between one and a half to two and a half or three percent, depending on what's happening in in the in the world of the economy at that point in time. To 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 highlight the difference between an asset with a zero inflation rate, which is Bitcoin, having absolute digital scarcity. It's the first and only asset we've created that has absolute digital scarcity and what a step function change that is relative to gold. What's really interesting to think about if you took all the gold in the world that was produced from literally since we were tadpoles all the way through to the, the 1800s, we mined more gold in the last 12 months than was exist was in existence in the year 1800.
0: Well, did not know that.
1: So you think about gold being scarce and it's a great store of value. And, it, you know, basically 2,000 years ago with an ounce of gold, you could buy a really high-quality suit. And guess what? Today with an ounce of gold, you can buy a high-quality suit. It's all relative. It's like, yes, but 70% of all gold was produced in the last 50 years. So it's not really a great store of value when you compare that to absolute digital scarcity. You also have a number of problems with... Um, with, with gold relative to Bitcoin in that you can walk around with 12 words in your head that no one will know you've got, Bitcoin, whereas you know, it's very difficult to walk around with a billion dollars of gold in your head. Um, you couldn't even move a billion dollars worth of gold. Another another thing from a store of value perspective, which I find very unique, which is a step function change to store of value, is that in in up until Bitcoin, you couldn't send... Um, An additional amount of gold to a vault without physically sending it there so you had to account for and secure transport of that asset to the location that you wanted to send it to whereas with bitcoin and what's very unique is i can send bitcoin to a vault that's located in antarctica from the usa Mm. i don't need to physically go there which is a very unique concept from a security perspective so i think it represents a huge upgrade on store of value now we move to medium exchange, and we think, well, what makes medium exchange a great thing? Well, acceptance, um, universal acceptance of of that as a currency, um, desire that people want that, and and one of the things that we've used for the last hundred years as a global reserve currency is the U.S. dollar. Um, however, some of the limitations we've we've only really come to light in the last twelve to twenty-four, well, thirty-six months, with with their unlimited ability to print as much as they want, they can print to infinity. And we've seen that during COVID, they printed an additional 40 or 50% of the supply, because that was something that was called for and and needed. And what's interestingly, we've seen in the last 12 months is we've seen the actual M2 money supply decrease 6 or 7% in the last 12 months. So liquidity has been drained out of the market. So it's really a whipsaw up and down of supply and issuance. Whereas you look at Bitcoin, What's really interesting is that you've got an immutable supply and issuance. We know exactly what's there, what's coming out right right the way through from now until the end of time. We know that in 2140, the issuance of Bitcoin is going to stop and we're going to have to rely on what we've got to make do, whereas that's not the case with the Federal Reserve and the US dollar. The other thing that's a big deal with the US dollar is that it's controlled by the US. So if you're not friendly to the US, then you basically have your your assets either seized, um, withheld from you, uh, or you're censored from making any transactions on the network. And I look at Russia being excluded from the SWIFT system and, you know, that's a huge deal. But it's a net negative to every other participant on the SWIFT network because now there's got to be workarounds and now we're building a second, well, I'm not, but, you know, Russia and China are building a second system that competes with SWIFT that's going to look after all of the BRICS nations. So it diminishes the value of the SWIFT network itself. So it's a net-net loss for everyone. And I look at this and I think, well, compare that to Bitcoin. Anyone who's got access to the internet or a smartphone can have access to Bitcoin. That's far more inclusive than the SWIFT network or alternatively the one that China and Russia is building out. So I look at that and I think the two key tech functions that improve medium exchange um, over the US dollar that we've got is you've got censorship resistance, meaning anyone can use it, and you've got an immutable supply and issuance. They're big deals. That improves, you know, the the function of money dramatically relative to the US dollar. It's just that not everyone believes that yet. So mm. that information isn't evenly distributed. Otherwise, Bitcoin would be a, high, you know, a lot higher in value. And then the final function of money is to basically be a scorecard, a unit of account to figure out, you know, where you sit on the totem pole, who's owed what, where and when. And this is where our unit of account that we use now is fundamentally, you know, a double entry ledger system, which is... Basically, a 500 year old system that we use that was a might be actually longer than that. The Arabs had it before the Venetians, but you know, for all intents and purposes, the Venetians delivered that to the world and led to a global trade and boom. It was a huge accounting innovation. The accounting profession's done nothing for the last 500 years. They've leached off this double entry ledger system, which was a huge deal and it was fantastic. But you know what's better than a double entry ledger system is a triple entry ledger system where not only Each participant in the transaction can see, but every participant in the network can see. And this is a huge accounting innovation because it leads to an immutable ledger, which means the ledger can't be changed. And this is, for the first time in history, the first time we've seen an immutable ledger. Now, this has got huge implications because, you know, I was having a chat with Luke Broyles talking about what are the implications for this is that it effectively brings in the third stage of humanity. We had a you know, basically, we had early days where, the, where we had humanity, which was pre-written word. And then we started writing on the walls in caves and coordinating um, for hunts and kills and basically ledgers who owed what to wear. And then that's the second system that we're living in now. We had pre-written word. Now we've got written word. And in 2009, we had recorded word or a recorded ledger that is an immutable ledger that cannot be changed regardless of what happens. And this has some profound impact on society that I don't think we really appreciate right now. So I look at these, you know, Bitcoin is a huge upgrade to our double entry ledger system, which is undeniable. It's an upgrade to the US dollar, which is undeniable. Objectively, it's not better than the US dollar yet, but it will be. Hmm. And then the store of value function, it's a much better store of value than gold because it's objectively better in every sense other than longevity and so what what the the central premise of that triple point asset is for the first time in history we are going to have three functions of money competing for one asset and okay. it is absolute digital scarcity in that asset
0: okay that makes sense T- tell me this now if i'm a if i'm a chap sitting on the sidelines and i'm a let's call me a boomer for the sake of the discussion and I say, oh, that sounds great, Pete, but um, I can't see it. I can't touch it. Uh, at least I can hold this beautiful, shiny rock. How do you deal with that question if uh, if
1: your clients ask that? It it really helps to have an understanding of, you know, what their preferences have been in the past. You need to understand maybe some of their best and worst investments. I think is a great question to ask them. You know, are they familiar with? You know, they may have invested in a FANG stock and that was fabulous and did really well for them, which, you know, a lot of boomers have made a fortune in those stocks. Um, and then trying to relate it to something that they understand. You know, they understand the premise of email. Uh, they probably didn't when it first arrived. How does this work? What's this send button? What's the receive? And do I post it or do I have to pay for a stamp? No, it's email. It's all free. Yeah, That's, you know, and and finding, you know, relatable topics that, you know, they are, I guess, excited or interested in is the easiest way to do that. And then you know, if you wanna take it one step further, I think actually showing them how it works is a really good way to do that. To say, hey, spin up a moon wallet and I'll send you some money now. And it's really powerful to sit opposite someone and say, I could be in the US, you could be here and I can literally send you that transaction instantly that is instant final settlement that's a big deal. They understand final settlement because they've worked in cash their mm. whole life and now they've mm. got to deal with credit cards. It's only you and I who are sort of well our generations which are, you know, credit card natives and digital natives now. I don't consider myself digital native but you know, the younger generations are and and this is where having being able to show them how that actually works is a big step to to generating curiosity and understanding and this is where I think it's of critical importance to generate curiosity in them because that leads them into further questions. And that's really what you're trying to create because, you know, like you or I, we can be told something, but unless we've actually done the work and really dig into it, we might not own it until we do the work.
0: Absolutely. And it seems to me that you also want to, the person wants to feel that they made a decision themselves. So it's almost like plant seed, walk away, touch base, Plant a little seed walk away and it's almost like there's a journey because we all had to go through that journey i mean none of us sort of saw it and were like yep this is it i don't know yeah. i mean i certainly wasn't but um, no, no one did yeah
1: I, I laugh when i hear people say i read the white paper and it just i'm like no you didn't yes like, totally
0: please. absolutely not because no there's one so read many it goes
1: oh amazing <laughs> like no hundred
0: percent and and i think those that did actually those that went like all in super early, I think they did so out of just kind of speculative hope, then a real deep analysis of it. Maybe there's a few complete outliers, but yeah, for the most part. So it seems as as if it's one of those scenarios. I love the idea of triple entry accounting system, because I think that's something that could resonate with people who are financially literate and to be able to say it's not only the two parties that can actually verify it, but there's actually tens of thousands of strangers. You'll never know who are doing the exact same thing. That's what's quite magic about it. So yeah, let's go into this, because this is, we said perhaps we wouldn't touch in it, but let's just touch briefly on this uh, valuation that you've come up with, potential valuation, or maybe it's the total addressable market. I'm not sure, but... Mm-hmm again, it seems to be your argument that most people focus on the store of value. They're not thinking about the other two functions of money. If we are to try and derive some sort of potential valuation, we need to multiply the three uh, and not just focus on the store of value uh, yeah. in linear terms. So is that correct? And um, just unpack that a little for us.
1: Yeah, I, I think, you know, the best way to think about that is, is that is that Those functions of money are in silos right now. Without Bitcoin's existence, gold never has to compete with the US dollar and the US dollar never has to compete with a double entry ledger system. So I think they're all reasonable assumptions to make in a world without Bitcoin. However, with a world with Bitcoin where you have that as the dominant asset for store of value, you have that as the dominant asset for a a medium of exchange and you have it as a dominant asset for a unit of account, this brings in some peculiarities that we've never seen before and it brings in some you know a whole host of game theory um I, I look at you know just an auction and i look at you know human the human psyche when when um placed in a position of missing out on something a, a term we're all familiar with FOMO, fear mm-hmm. of missing out and the irrational exuberance that that creates in a person who thinks they are going to miss out on something and what they're prepared to do. And there are two examples I can think of this that sort of bring this to to a roundabout conclusion and relates to Bitcoin. The first is quite uh, a visceral uh, representation of this that happened maybe 300 metres from my office in the Woolworths just around the corner, which is the the largest supermarket in the area. Um, During the time of COVID, there were effectively fights in that supermarket for toilet paper yes. because people yes. thought they were not going to get any more toilet paper. Now, that doesn't diminish the fact that if absolutely necessary, you you can find alternatives to toilet paper, including literally leaves, other forms of <laughs> yes. paper. Or, a bidet or a... dare I say an aquiturd if you hop in the, <laughs> in the river. But, I mean, we won't go into that. <laughs> there, there are a host of alternatives yet people were prepared to get into physical confrontations to secure their lot of toilet paper on a shelf that was going to be refilled in 24 to 48 hours. Now, you look at that and you apply that uh, perceived scarcity with the real-life scarcity and absolute digital scarcity of Bitcoin and the fact that there are only going to be 21 million coins When people really understand what this thing is, that the shelves aren't going to be packed with more Bitcoin in 24 to 48 hours, that there is no alternative, they're not going to be able to wipe their bum with a leaf or uh, what you mentioned, there is going to be some serious competition for that. And another example I give of this is, you know, you look at an auction environment for either fine art or alternatively a piece of property that's sought after. If you have, and I'm sure you've been to property auctions that were on, say, on site on a cloudy, rainy day where nobody got out of bed to turn up to the auction and the property passes in effectively under what they call the reserve. So under what the vendor was prepared to sell it for. Mm. Now, good opportunity for someone who's adventurous enough to venture out in poor weather and find themselves a bargain at a house auction. But you compare that to an auction, which is hosted in a nice environment with many, many bidders bidding for the same property rather than passing in under the reserve that the vendor's ready to accept. That property could go 5, 10, 20, 30, 40 percent in excess of what they're prepared to pay for it or what they're prepared to accept to sell it. And I look at this and I think that's just a home, one of which can be replicated and reconstructed just about anywhere on earth. However, Bitcoin cannot cannot be reconstructed, it cannot be reconstituted or repurposed. There is only twenty one million Bitcoin, and when and there is an addressable market for roughly eight billion humans on Earth who all need it, but they don't know they need it yet. And therein lies the opportunity that there may be half a percent of the world's population that actually has some kind of formal grasp of understanding of what this potentially represents, and there are going to be another 8 billion people pile in behind them that want to get their piece of this network. And this is where competitive tension is going to completely eviscerate all of our models and understanding of what's posed currently. And we've never had a we've never had a market for 8 billion people that will want the same good. Mm-hmm. Herein lies Bitcoin. It serves all three functions of money. So people are at different stages of their life, require different things. The elderly need a store of value and they need effectively a secure unit of account that's not going to be altered. The young need a mean of exchange to get ahead and move ahead. All of a sudden, every single demographic of humanity is going to require a piece of this network, but there's only 21 million. So what happens when incentives and outcomes align that creates competitive tension where there are 8 billion people requiring the same good this is where my wild thought process to
0: think of that absolutely wild to think of it because i never i would have never have equated the demand for uh, bitcoin to be you know fomo like like the running around the supermarket fighting your neighbor for toilet paper but It's, it's, yeah, I actually, yeah, it's quite mind blowing to think of when, when the penny finally drops, and I don't know what it necessarily is. But yeah, it it feels like there'll be this sort of rush. And that's when we'll just reach levels that we could never even dream of, particularly when you think, well, particularly where you think of how irrational people were over the last little while, you think about what's happening globally, I kind of subscribe to the sort of sovereign individual thesis, um, where, as we've transitioned from the industrial to the digital age, uh, the power relations between government and their people are starting to alter. And our money, Bitcoin, can go wherever we want to go, and they can't do anything about it. And it just changes the rules of the game. Uh, and to quote someone who I like to follow on, on YouTube, his name's Andrew Henderson, go where you're treated best. Um, yeah. And that's what people will do. They'll just vote with their feet and say, we're going here, we're doing that. And so it seems to me that Bitcoin is going to become the medium of exchange, unit of accounts in various parts of the world. And that's the game theory unfolding. They'll say, we stand for freedom. We stand for this, this and this. Bitcoin is a welcome, by the way. Oh, and there's no capital gains tax on your Bitcoin we'll suddenly see an enormous amount of demand. And it we will just see the world reconfigured. I think, based on this thesis, once again, we've seen this consolidation of power, centralization, the nation state as it exists today is somewhat of an anomaly. If you take into account our existence, uh, we've typically operated, I think you spoke with Luca uh, about the Dunbar number, and then we started forming smaller communities and that's why I kind of go with the whole European Union experiment. It feels very fragmented and cobbled together that is not likely to last. and I feel we we're moving towards this decentralized future where not only nation states are going to start potentially splitting at the seams, but yeah, people are going to want to just go where they're treated best. um and Bitcoin is that life raft that can you can take wherever. and you contrast that with, let's say you're roman abramovich and you got your you know 100 million dollar yacht and it's like nope we're we're seizing that boy and it's like no you can't touch my bitcoin
1: you know that is such a great point like i didn't think in the year 2023 i would be sticking up for the rights of russian oligarchs Yet here (laughs) i am thinking that stealing a guy's boat who you know you were happy to have is you know, buy one of your most cherished items in your football team, in your EPL, yeah. and you turn around and steal his boat, I'm like, oh my goodness, how do I equate this? This is where the world's gone. And, you know, I I think this is the beauty of Bitcoin, that you can travel with your wealth and you're not tied down for a geopolitical perspective or a a geographic perspective. You can move to wherever you want and you can take your wealth with you. And that is a mind-blowing concept that has never existed in humanity. You look at all of the, the current, you know, refugee migration from South and Central America through to America or the US. You look at the Middle East and, you know, some of the war zones that have happened in Sudan and and the rest of it. You know, awful, awful atrocities that, you know, if they had Bitcoin, they can walk with their wealth in their head. And when they get to the position that they're safe and can settle down and, you know, create a life for themselves, you know, they've got an asset that they can restart with and actually contribute to that society who wants them to be there um in a in a beneficial manner to all in all involved it it is a complete paradigm shift that this is what makes me hopeful the the number go up and the you know the valuation frameworks are fun to think about but the ability to move humanity forward and up that consciousness scale that bitcoin delivers and the ability to unite 8 billion people albeit there's going to be a mad rush to get it when they Mm. figure it out but once that settles down we're all united around something that can move humanity forward dramatically and i think in the fastest way possible so that is one of the things that i'm really excited about
0: yeah exactly uh, i echo your sentiments and you know, i'm as excited about uh, number go up as i am about freedom go up and yeah. um i think of i think of my background obviously coming from south africa and i think of what bitcoin can do for that continent and how africa's got such a youthful population and how it Literally, because of its tardiness in adopting technology, it has this uh, proclivity to basically jump or leapfrog various iterations. So we didn't really get any sort of um, NBN. The the vast majority of people jumped straight to mobile, straight yeah. to mobile. They never even bothered with uh, that infrastructure. And I can almost see a day eventually in, in in Africa where you sit in there going, "Why would I have a Malawian QuaCha?" or South African rand maybe I'll have some to just pay for my living expenses but you know beyond that this is where my value is going to be stored i think the challenge you're going to have and also i mean from capital controls perspective um, and from a remittances perspective and good luck <laughs> it, it's yeah it's um it's just so incredibly powerful and one of my goals with this podcast is to talk to folks in africa too cuz i really want to get a sense of what they're doing to move the needle because I think that's where we're gonna see we're gonna see some transformations happening on a scale that we've never seen before because it's been completely mismanaged for the last 50, 60 years since uh, most of these countries became free. And I often just hear about what's happening in South Africa. And I had my birthday a couple of days ago. I spoke to my mates and you know I was like what's happening over there. And this is now a diehard African. This is a guy who grew up in the townships a big six foot three black dude who's just he's got everything going for him and he's like dude i've got a plan b going and i'm like "Woo, that's music to my ears because you're thinking <laughs> haven't got him down the bitcoin path yet but you're okay. You, i think yeah and i'm trying to sort of orange for these people slowly but you just hear what's happening on the ground there and it's just so heartbreaking it actually makes me feel really grateful to be living in australia so yeah, I think um, I've got a lot of hope for the future. You know, when people, I mean, especially when I was speaking to my friends, um, oh, there's just a lot of doom and gloom and rolling blackouts. And, you know, um, the, the communities yeah. are getting together to fix potholes. And God knows what else. I mean, because the government just takes all the money. But I've just you know, got so much hope for uh, the future and, and, and what Bitcoin can do. But I think it's just it's just one of these things. I can't actually, I'm not there and I can't actually... I don't have my finger on the pulse on the exact problems and how adoptions is going to happen. That's that's sort of the the thing.
1: Well, I think one of the benefits is you recognize what are the limitations and you know difficulties in doing that, and you're doing everything you can from Australia to you know improve outcomes and recognition, education, understanding of Bitcoin. What's what's really interesting is something I look at quite a, quite a lot is the the description. Um, of the situation in Africa describes really a need for Bitcoin, whereas us in the West are basically spoiled. It's a want, which means we've got to want to understand it and go down the rabbit hole, whereas the conversation in Africa and South America and the rest is one of need. They don't want it. They need it which means they're going to be faster to adopt it. And one thing I look at um, and think about this is, you know, region beta paradox, which is those in a worse situation often end up in a better situation over the long run because it forces change. It's a force function for change that they need it. So you, you know, you sketch that out over a number of years, you know, they could very well be in a much better position than us mm. over the next 10 or 20 years, because they've had to take, uh, they've they've effectively had to take action now and, find themselves in a much better position in the long term. Interesting. Yeah, that's kind of like sort of what Singapore did, I guess, and look where they
0: are today. And perhaps that's what mm-hmm. El Salvador is doing today. And you say, is is El Salvador going to be the sort of uh, uh, Singapore of uh, Central America in the next
1: 20 years? I, I, I would say that there's, you know, there's it's, it's, it's a reasonable chance. Who knows? Um, there's a high probability at the moment. I'm just rooting for Bukele to stay in power as long as possible so he can deliver on that vision. I think, it's, you know...
0: Yeah, you, you're spot on there, and there's always this sort of tug in these um, third world countries because, on the one hand, where you have freedom, freedom can get really messy. You you'd have a situation where uh, the gangs are running the show, the you know the judiciary is completely corrupt. You know, all all levels are simply just infiltrated by whoever the ruling party is. And so, I mean, much like apartheid, that was kind of what was happening there. And so that's, I guess, been some of the concerns there. When I look at some of the data on an objective level, I go, it seems that 98% of the population are doing so much better. And there's going to be some eggs that are cracked. I think it's the same for Paul Kagame in Rwanda, who sort of stitched it all together post-94, I believe. Um, So... Yeah, but it's a fascinating experiment, and I think it's a very kind of complicated issue. But I'm certainly rooting for them, and I'm certainly rooting for Bekele because I think if he goes, it's it's difficult to see how the momentum will continue. But yeah, no, it's it's a wonderful time we're living through. It's like Simon Dixon says regularly: this is the most fascinating time in financial history, and this is the only time I've actually been conscious for, <laughs> in my <laughs> for financial history. But I think it's bloody fascinating, Pete it is
1: like you know there's so many anomalies that are happening right now that no other time in history it's happened we've never had debt to gdp at these levels we've never had the ability to print the the amount of money that we have even in wartime and you know we've never had of real interest rates for such an extended period of time you know that zero interest rate policy was literally an anomaly over the last four thousand or five thousand years so interesting yes. times indeed.
0: It was when I first heard about negative interest rates, literally, like on a nominal basis, I thought this is silly. You're actually having to pay the bank to look after money that is depreciating. Okay, got it. It doesn't make sense.
1: You know, um, yeah, you know, some wealthy families in Switzerland were not were asking for you know their dividends from stocks to be paid in checks, so they didn't have to deposit them in the bank and pay the bank a negative interest rate. <laughs>
0: Unbelievable,
1: hey? Yeah. Oh geez, wild it is, times.
0: Yeah, it is. It is very wild times. But um, this has been absolutely superb. I would like to ask you one more question. Um, if you could steer someone towards one article, book, um, or specific podcast that you believe sort of has most accurately provided a bullish case that, that you think is kind of pretty sound and complete have you got any go to source where you say just go and read this or look at this
1: there are multiple but maybe it was um the persuasion that you put forward i'd i'd use bj's bullish case for bitcoin it's a free blog i'd start there that's a 5 minute 10 minute read that lays out a pretty good case for why bitcoin should be and then if you want more information you know there's countless articles podcasts that he's been in and involved in Um, you can buy his book which is one of the things that we do for all our clients we basically send them a copy of vj's the bullish case for bitcoin he's come and talked to us a number of times i have huge affection for vj and um, i think it's a really good starting point it's not over overbearing what he's suggesting it's not like drinking from a fire hose there's some very logical easy to understand steps that i think anyone can 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 take so Bullish case for Bitcoin, VJ Boy Patty.
0: Done deal. All right. Uh, shout out to VJ, two in a <laughs> row. <laughs> okay. So thanks so much for all this. Uh, really appreciate it. And uh, yeah, uh, hopefully we can uh, catch up in the not too distant future and see what tumultuous times uh, have been before us because it is truly wild. But it's been a, a real pleasure. Thank you so much. Appreciate your time.
1: Thanks, Dale, for your time. Great job. Thanks. All right.
0: Cheers. Thank you. All right, so how'd you go with that? I hope you enjoyed it, I hope it made sense and that you got some value. If you have any feedback, good, bad or ugly, or any questions, I'd really like to hear from you. Uh, get in touch via Twitter, at Dale21M for 21 million. And if you found the episode useful or valuable in any way, please consider subscribing, giving it a five star review, or otherwise just sharing it with a friend. I've said it before, and I'll say it again, I'm not here to tell you what to invest in. I'm simply here to make sure that if you're going to invest in crypto outside of Bitcoin, that you do so with your eyes wide open. Much love, friends. Appreciate you all. And I'll see you again soon. Cheers.